Futures Edge podcast. I'm Jim Urio. As always, we'll be with Bob Iacchino, who's with the brains of the operations, executive producer and co-host. Today, not that I need to introduce him, but it's Jim Bianco, who is the CEO and founder of Bianco Research. And if you don't know him in the financial industry, just quit your job and go do something else because you haven't been paying attention. Uh, Jim Bianco, thank you for coming on with us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So I'm worried about this is going to morph into like three dagos talking about markets and hands are going to go. There's going to be smacks at the dinner table and things like that. So let's try to be let's try to be cool. But before we go, we have to establish credibility. So tell me, did you grow up in an all Italian household, father and yes. mother immigrant? Did you? Yes, What's I did. What's your favorite dish that your mother cooked? Oh, um, uh, probably most acholi. I don't even want to call it a. You got to get the name right, right? Nice. Well, don't you hate name, what, my presence? What do you, what, Bobby? What was your favorite dish that your mother made? Uh, oddly enough, it was it's something called steak scallopini. Um, she takes fillet and she pounds them down thin, and then she puts mushrooms and butter and red wine, and it's it's just you need one to, one fabulous. plate of it to eat, and the other plate to rub all over yourself. So I will I will win this debate because you're both not yes my my mother who was of Irish descent but my we live with my grandma and grandpa who are often both Italian and so my mom learned to cook for my grandma but she'd make the brujol you know where you roll the meat up and cook yeah. it in the in the red sauce where do yeah. you where do you fall on that that has to be somewhere near the top right what's right. actually pretty high up near the top for me I'll t- I'll just tell you real quick my mom so it's funny. My parents were both immigrants. Jim, I don't know if you had this experience, uh, Jim Bianco, if you had the same experience as me, but, you know, for years there was neck bones and meat and the sauce, right? And then as my father started to work and earn money, he started bringing home short rib and uh, flank steak and stuff, and they'd make the brajol. And my mom, to this day, when she hears people talk about neck bones, she goes, we only use those because they were like 13 cents for five pounds. She goes, once we had money, we stopped using neck bones are garbage. She'd get all mad about people looking for <laughs> she's, neck bones. She's wrong. Neck bones were my favorite part of the sauce. But you know what? Again, they, it was because it was poverty that caused them to buy neck bones. <laughs> it's not like the neck bones made it better than the short rib bones did. They were just cheaper. Jim Bianco, what name? Where did you grow up? Yeah, I was just going to say, since we're going to be talking about uh, all the Dago talk, I grew up in Elmwood Park. Oh, of course you did. My dad's bakery was there, Jim. My dad's bakery was on 76th and Belmont in Elmwood Park. Okay. Yeah. I grew up on 79th Street, Russell's Ribs in uh, Johnny's Hot Dog Stand. Good stuff. Yeah. I'm getting hungry just talking about this stuff. I grew up in Palatine, but oddly, in like an eight-house radius, there was five off-the-boat Italian families. Um, So it was like a little, little suburban uh, you know, Italian ghetto in the middle of, you know, Palatine, which is very odd, but I, I still don't know how that worked out. I'm sure the, the Uriel section of, of Palatine. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Was that right? We're all relatives. Yeah. I grew okay, up in Cicero and it was funny uh, leaving the people who uh, left Cicero ended up in Melrose Park and Elmwood Park. And then the people who left Melrose Park and Elmwood Park ended up in Schaumburg and Palatine and Arlington Heights. Right. It was funny. Yeah. That's funny. Okay, let's get let's get down to some level of business here, even though it's a Friday afternoon. Um, we saw the unemployment numbers today, Jim Bianco. Does does it matter? Do you do you look at that number and think it was a good number? Do you look at the household survey and say it was soft? What do you think? I think it was overall two things. It was a good number for the economy. People are getting jobs, people are getting employed. <laughs> the household survey 
has always had issues about diverging with the establishment survey. That's what the, there's two surveys for everybody knows. One, they ask households, are you employed? And then they ask businesses, how many people did you employ for the month? And the, the business uh, survey or the establishment survey is generally perceived to be more accurate. That was the one that showed 372,000 jobs where the household survey showed a loss of jobs. I tend to think that the establishment survey is better and that that is a, a, a good sign that jobs are being created, but welcome to 2022. That's not necessarily a good thing for markets. With a Federal Reserve that is very worried about inflation and looking to cool demand, they're gonna look at people getting work as a reason that they have to keep raising rates and raising rates more aggressively so we're back to a phrase we haven't used in 40 years. Um, good news is bad news for the markets. Good news means that the Fed raises rates more aggressively. So tell me this, prior to seeing this print today, were you in the camp that I was, and I think still am, of recession either now or sometime within the next quarter? Were you there? No, I was already, we already began. You know, I think the recession okay. is already underway. We're just kind of debating about the start date. I think that all this talk about we're going to avoid recession, um, yeah, and you know what, you could you could put me um, in the batter's box at Wrigley Field, and I could close my eyes and hit a home run too. It can happen, okay. but it's not likely to happen. <laughs> no, that's and that well, your metaphor there was about the soft landing and threading the needle, and that's right. a bunch of horseshit in your opinion. Okay, good, because I agree yeah. with that as well too. Now, is it hyperbolic to say that the CPI number coming out next week? is probably one of the biggest prints of a number we've seen in a long, long time. The CPI number is the number. Let's remember what happened last month. <clears throat> the number beat, it was 1%. And the Fed immediately pivoted from a 50 basis point hike to a 75 basis point hike in the space of two days. And off we went. Today, I'm just looking at my screen right now. There is a 93% chance the Fed is going to raise rates 75 basis points uh, July 27th, the next meeting, and a 7% chance they're going to raise them 100. So if you get a beat and the, the expectations are 1.1%, which would be one of the highest numbers in the last 50 years, <clears throat> if we get 1.1% or somewhere in that range. But if we beat that, we could start talking. I'm not going to say we're going to go 100 but it's definitely going to become in the conversation. Jim, Just you like lost the beat for, last month, please. The because the, the, the you what you what are you looking at? Because I got, you confused me for a second. Because the last one was the eight point six percent number, right? Was well, I'm looking at the meeting? monthly number? I'm looking at the month over got month it. number. Eight point six was the year over year number. That number is expected to be eight point eight. Um, okay. Uh, when the, the the data comes out, that's the expectations. And by the way, ten of the last fifteen times. That, that number's beaten expectations. So 8.8 okay. is what they're expecting. And if you wanted to look for a bias, it'd probably be a beat because that seems to be the trend that we've had recently. So I know that that's the trend and that's, that's Jim Bianco's opinion too. And the reason I ask is because when I see copper down 30%, when I see crude having plummeted, I see the five-year break-evens having just since that June 10th CPI number go from 3.2 to 2.6, to me, it, it seems like the inflation picture has changed a bit. What am I missing? And do you think it's going to be a beat on the upside? Yeah, I well, the June number should still be a beat on the upside because the June number, when they did the survey for prices, was still when all of those prices were still up at the highs or close. You know, we, we were north of $120 in crude oil. <clears throat> we were north of $5 a 
on uh, gasoline at, at that point. Now you're right, copper has plummeted and crude oil has plummeted and break-evens have plummeted. Now, wh what that suggests to me at least is the economy's plummeting. Uh, I don't necessarily <laughs> sure that, that that necessarily means that prices are following through or prices are following through to the extent that we need them to. Uh, let me give you a stat not many people are talking about. The July 2021, a year ago's CPI report was 0.4. And then August was 0.3 a year ago. So all we have to do is match a 0.4 or 0.3 for July or August of this year. And we stay at that 8.6, 8.8% year over year range. Uh, if we actually were to get more than that, we could actually push near 9%. The reason I bring that up is you could give me all the coppers and all the break-evens in the world, but if we keep printing inflation with an eight handle, the Fed cannot back off. They cannot do anything but 50 or 75 or 50 or 75. Yeah, they're going to probably go too far. Yeah, they've broken things and they're going to break a lot more things. Broken things in the economy, going to break a lot more things in the economy, being aggressive. But the president ordered them, ordered them to bring down inflation last month. They can't come back and say, well, you know, the stock market's struggling and interest rates have gone up, so maybe we should stop. They got to keep going. And so is when we get a number that start, when we get inflation to really start coming down, we could talk about them backing off. But I don't think that happens to the fall at the earliest. Okay, good. So you just mentioned something. I'm going to ask one more question. Have you elaborated on it before? We're going to bring Robbie in for question two. You said... The mandate is singularly focused on inflation. I agree with you. Is there a, of course, the, the answer to this is going to be yes, but then, then we get to what is it? Is there a level of stock market declines that, that frightens them and scares them back into something else? And, and I mean, if it came down 60%, of course they would pivot, right? Right. You're talking about the Fed put. Where's the strike price of the Fed put? That's the Bingo. Wall Street parlance for it. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a conceptual answer. Uh, the Fed is singularly focused on inflation. When we break enough things, we can then assume inflation's been broken. How far down does the stock market have to go? Because then we say, okay, we've now broken inflation. We've broken a hell of a lot of other things, but we've now broken, broken inflation. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a feeling it's a lot lower than we think. It might be under 3,000 um, at this point. That's just my guess. But when you get to that point, wherever that point is, then you get to the point where the Fed could say, look, inflation's now done too with everything else. But that's but, going to be a lot lower than we think it is. is so I, just to put, to, to put a, a point on that and then bring Bobby in, I have been vocally and sold quite a few of the 3,000 puts, which at the time of us, and I, I sold them at a pretty good time. And they were August, and that represents down 34% in the S&P. When I thought about that, it was it was two things is that I'll take it. I'll buy it there. You know what I mean? So I think, I mean, it's easy to say, it's easy to be a tough guy when when you're sitting at down 25%, down down 34%. But do you think that selling the 3,000 puts at the time, I mean, I've made money on it so far, but is that the right trade to stay short though? Uh, if you've got them far enough out, if you're into the leaps category, yes. I think you could probably make some money on something like that. At least at this point, you know, you, if you sold them thinking that we could go there, yes. And what you'd be looking for is any sign that actual CPI is going to break and that will cause the Fed to back off. Um, 
if we get 1.1% in June, as the consensus expects, there is no backing off. That we'll make a new cycle high. And yeah, they'll say, oh, this is peak inflation for like the 14th straight month in a row. They'll, they'll announce that this is peak inflation. And if you say it long enough, eventually it'll be right. But the Fed can't stop. They just, they're in a bad place. The quick word about the Fed. The mistake the Fed made was last year using the word transitory. The consequence of that mistake is this year. And so, you know, people say, what is the Fed doing? They're responding to the mistake from last year by potentially overdoing it this year. But they also, I mean, they were buying bonds and particularly mortgage backs into the teeth of a red hot uh, housing market 15 months ago. This is, this is one of the most asinine self-inflicted wounds we've seen, correct? Oh, 15 months ago. They were buying them three months ago or four months <laughs> three ago. Three months ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This was a self-inflicted wound because I'll, I'll, I'll back up a second. Every pandemic has led to a major change in human history. This one is no different. Now, on some levels, that change has led to work from home and a lot of different attitudes about work and about life and a lot of other things. That has led to a consumption pattern that has changed in the United States and in all developed world, uh, the developed world. We consume more things and less services. That's why we have a chronic shortage of things. That's why we have a supply chain problem. And that's why goods inflation is so high. A great example of that is Target and Walmart having bloated inventories. If you do, drill down and read what they've said about their bloated inventories, is it's more than just a slowdown in consumers. That's part of it. When we came off of Omicron, they said, OK, the economy's reopening. Stock the shelves. Stock the shelves with what? What did we put stock the shelves with in 2019? Put that back on the shelves. What they found was people went to the store and they don't buy things in the same proportions that they bought in 2019. They buy more things, less services, and that's why they had too much of some things, not enough of other things. And so as we go forward from here, we have to understand that this economy has had a major change. Now, the, and work from home, I think, is a major driver of it because the more you're home, even if it's a couple of days a week, the more you do things, the more things you buy, the less services you consume. The biggest problem we have with the economy right now is whenever I say this to people, they want to argue with me whether it's true. And I said, look, we could do that, but we're just wasting time. Eventually, we're going to realize it is true, and we have to go about restructuring the economy for this new post-pandemic world. Instead, we want to be like Stephen Ross. He's the owner of the Miami Dolphins, and he made his billions by New York City real estate. And he's saying, don't worry, everybody's going to go back to the office. Yeah, because he owns a ton of them in New York City. And they're all going to go back to the office five days a week. Yeah, good luck with that, Stephen, that they're all going to go back to the office five days a week. Uh, they're not. And we need to understand that since that's not going to happen, how does the office survive in a new work from home world instead of having this argument about whether or not we're going to go back? So we're still a ways away. And while we do that, we're going to have friction in the economy and markets are going to remain on edge because that whole idea that there's going to be some reopening or return to normal, as I'd like to say to people, we are reopened, ED. This is the new normal. Get used to it. This is your new post-pandemic post economy. We're not waiting for anything else. We're just waiting for you to recognize that it is, and then we could go about changing it. By the way, I've, used that. I've heard you say that before. You wrote a thread on it, but I talk about it all the time. And Bobby's got the next question, but one quick thing. We changed trading floors one month ago. Different, different building uh, rooms in the same building. 
there's a convenience store, Anil, my friend who runs it. Now we don't walk by his store anymore. And all of a sudden he's got to make a change that. So this is just one group of people, 400 guys moving or to a different office in the same building. And all of a sudden his, on a very, very micro level, his stocking is all messed up and he doesn't know how to do it as well anymore. And it takes a long time to figure it out. So that's what you're saying. You know, imagine that now spread out a million times. Bobby, what do you got? Well, I've got actually three questions, but since one of them was sparked by some of the things you just said, Jim, I'll ask you this one first. Do you have any idea, is it part of Bianco Research to kind of figure out what you just described look like? Uh, looks like? I mean, we actually, we just talked about the aspect of the change in human history. For example, today it was announced Yelp is closing their offices in Chicago, DC and Boston because occupancy after the pandemic was 2% of their employees. Nobody wanted to go back to work. One of my friends that actually works there said the conversation was it was due to crime. I suspect people just don't want to leave home anymore like they used to. So sort of weaving into that services inflation is something that I'm currently concerned with because it's stickier, right? I mean, services inflation in part due to wage increases, which we saw a little bit of strength in that in today's number. So do you think with the transition, uh, the transition you just described, will that slowly ease off some of the services inflation that we've seen or could it even reverse it? Well, part of the problem is, um, is that services have changed as well too. And I'll give you one quick statistic. You've probably seen the TSA statistic of the throughput at the airport, and we're back to about 95% of the pre-pandemic levels of the airport um, usage right now. And if you've been to the airport, it feels like it, it's about as crowded as it was before the pandemic. But American Express breaks that number down. And American Express tells us that business travel is, about, is still about half to two-thirds of what it was pre-pandemic. Leisure travel is 130% of pre-pandemic and leisure travel is every day of the week. You could go on a Tuesday afternoon to the airport and you're gonna see a family of four with their kids. It's no longer Saturday morning that they're doing that. And the airlines have been very slow to recognize we don't need 35 flights a day between Chicago and New York City. Maybe what we need is more flights to California and to Florida. And they finally are starting to make those shifts right now pulling planes off the Chicago to New York route and moving them to the Chicago to Florida route, just to use one example, because that's why we've got this surge in ticket prices. It's not business people that are paying up for tickets. It's leisure travel that's paying up for tickets right now. So we need to understand this post-pandemic economy. By the way, don't confuse post-pandemic with dystopian. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's mm -hmm. different. And mm -hmm. so I know every time I say the post-pandemic economy, you know, dark images come into everybody's mind. No, oh, no, sure. it's just, it came into it's mind. just, yeah, it's <laughs> just different. It's no, it's neither, it's neither better or worse, but if you keep an economy and keep producing products and offering services for a 2019 economy, for a 2022 preference, everything's going to stay out of balance until we start getting it back into balance. And we're not ready yet to, you know, to go that to go that next level. Businesses are still struggling. There's been very little office space that has been given back. Yelp might be in, a, you know, the beginning of a trend mm -hmm. uh, because they're not sure what they're supposed to do. Are we supposed to give up on getting everybody back to the office and give back half our space, um, or do we, or do we hold out hope that they're going to come back? 
so we're really struggling with this. And the other thing about the office too, just real quick, about 50% of the jobs in America, you cannot do remotely. A cop can't be remote. Um, a waitress can't be remote. A surgeon can't be remote. Um, you know, the shortstop for the Chicago White Sox can't be remote. Although if you've seen the games the last few days, it sure looks like he has been. <laughs> and, and, but uh, but uh, the other half can. Those are largely service jobs. About 80% of those jobs, this is according to Nick Bloom at Stanford University, about 80% of those jobs are now some kind of form of either hybrid work or remote work. Those service sector jobs are broken down into two, group, two broad things, your job, my job. Are things we have to do and people we have to interact with. And what we've learned in the last two years is the things we have to do, write reports, do research, update spreadsheets, whatever it happens to be that you have to do, you can do that at home most efficiently. You're not being distracted. You got the less time from the commute and everything else. People we have to interact with, Zoom is not as good as face-to-face. -face. Right. That needs to be improved. But the problem is, why do we hire people? Like I got, I got three kids in their 20s and they've all got jobs. And what did they have to do for a couple of them for the jobs that they have? They had to take like an Excel test or a PowerPoint test to make sure that they were proficient in Excel or PowerPoint. Well, if that's your priority, that I want to hire somebody and they're proficient in Excel or PowerPoint and they can do all of these technical things that need to be done, then work from home is the priority. You're not hiring them with a personality test to see if they'll fit in well with um, everybody else in the office. So that's where we have this struggle with. You hired me to update spreadsheets. You hired me to update reports. I could do that best at home. Well, you, we should get together and, and inter, interface with each other. Yeah, but I don't want to get on the L at 6.30 in the morning, and I don't want to have to truck down to the loop and do that every single day. So we're still struggling to try and figure this out. And until we do, we're going to remain with an economy that's friction, has more friction, has more imbalances, has higher inflation, and markets that will have more volatility to reflect that. Jim, do you do any work on productivity? I've done some work on productivity. And what you found with productivity is it's actually up a little bit, mm -hmm. um, largely because of uh, the way that we measure the output of productivity, that you know, your, your job is to produce something. And since I'm hiring you to produce it, you, you seem to do it better even with the remote work. Later on in life, whether it comes to um, um, increases uh, promotions, new job opportunities and stuff like that, that you're going to try and do lack of face-to-face -face contact, that might still be a problem. So I'm not saying that work from home is a panacea. It's just that we need to stop arguing because I, I can't tell you how many people when I bring this up argue with me. Oh, no, no, you wait. The next recession, everybody's going to go flocking back to the office and beg for a job. And I said, most people attach a monetary value to work from home. The next recession, they won't give you a raise. They'll give you an extra day at home is what they'll do. Uh, and you'll be happy with that. Oh, good. Now I get four days at home instead of three. Um, you know, the, reason, no the reason I ask you that question, if you don't mind me interrupting, is I had an early sort of experience of work from home because obviously I left the trading floor in 2004 and I left deliberately. Um, I started to see what was going on. I sold my operation to my partner and I said, I got to figure out a way to do this off the floor because I don't think the floor is going to be here in the capacity that I was working on it. 
I probably ended both sooner and later than I thought, depending on what you're, what aspect you're talking about. But so I went and I moved to another city. I moved to Los Angeles, never do that again, but I moved to Los Angeles and started to figure out work from home. And I found myself working longer, but less productively per hour. And overall, I was probably more productive because I worked longer hours. But instead of, you know, the trading floor used to, you basically were stuck in those busy times you had to work. By the way, nothing squeezes productivity out of a human being that a trading floor during non-farm payroll. Um, you know, you got literally four phones. People don't understand that was a real thing. But my productivity per hour went down and I still find it to be that way, to be honest. But I do more work in a given day. Is that classifiable or is that just human nature and the way they work? No, I think that that's what we're, what we're finding too is part of the productivity increase is people are working on average almost an hour or more a day than they did before because they're, they're working most of the extra time that they spent getting ready to go to work, commuting to work. They're, they're, they're spending a chunk of that time working. And that's both the, to the morning commute and the after commute. And some of that time they're spending on personal time as well. But overall, their day is now a longer day. So they're producing more output. And that's the way we measure productivity. How much output did you do at this job? Not output per hour. We haven't quite gotten that. Eventually, they might try and revise the statistics to try and measure that. But they don't have a way to measure that now. So they're just seeing more output. And that's why they're seeing more productivity out of the data. Got it. Hey, back to um, to rates for a second, as long as we got you. After we saw the number today, the immediate move in the yield curve two tens was like went down to uh, negative nine. I'm sure you saw that. But then it gravitated back up to to about even. Going forward, so to me, I thought I was like, okay, the steepening trade. I mean, the uh, the negative yield inverted curve trade is going to be the trade because I think this this number was just enough. The Fed believes that it's, it's you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. And I think they're going to front load, front load. And I thought the curve would um, go more negative. What do you think the curve is telling us by going back to zero? Um, I think that there's this belief that the story, the curve is telling me at least the story of the last year, a disbelief that the Fed is going to get aggressive, a disbelief that inflation is going to stay sticky high, and a disbelief that if it does, the Fed is really going to get aggressive. The latest iteration of that is, oh, the Fed's going to cut rates next year. And we've got rate, rate cuts priced in on the forward curve for next year. I, so I think what the curve is inability to do yet, or it's being dragged screaming and kicking, is you're right. I'm in the camp that it's probably going to go severely negative at some point. The economy is going to slow. I think we're in recession. We're going to realize that. And eventually, when that manifests itself, you'll probably see a big rally in tens, but you're not going to see twos move on that. And then you wind up with a big inversion of the curve. But a lot of people are having a hard time getting their head around that. Oh, if the recession comes, you hear this all the time. If the recession hits, um, the Fed, that's it. The Fed's done. They're going to wheel around. They're going to start printing money. They're going to try and save the economy. And it comes back to what I said earlier. Uh, inflation is really bad. And this needs to be dealt with. It's worse than a recession. So what I see with the curve is this inability to kind of accept Fed policy for what it is. By the way, a quick word on the forward curve too, that it's pricing in a bunch of rate cuts for next year. That's what the market's priced in. 
That's what the market thinks is going to happen. Doesn't mean it will. Go back a month ago. I remember even a month ago, right before the June 10th uh, May CPI, September pause was the big was the big battle cry. How's that working out right now? We got 75 in May uh, or in June, and we're going to get another 75 in July and probably 50 in September. There is no September pause. A year ago, the forward curve had one rate hike priced in for all of 2022. How's that looking right now, that we're only going to move one rate hike? Yeah, that's what the market thinks. It's very important to understand that. But I think that Wall Street's making the mistake, oh, since the market's priced in rate cuts for 23, that means there will be rate cuts in 23. Doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Okay, we had uh, Cameron Dawson. Uh, we, we've spoke to her several times. You know her from New England? Yes. Uh, yes, she's, she seems uh, brilliant to me. Um, she talked about the uh, healing of the supply chain. She may mention on the New York Fed, the Philly Fed, both showing shorter delivery times from suppliers. Um, if the supply, and again, we talked about this before when you were talking about, uh, and for people listening, all that stuff we were talking about work from home is all just the broad web of the supply chain not being able to adjust to it. And what is the time frame now we're talking about before we start to see the proper adjustments made and things are getting where it's supposed to go? Are you talking decades? It, it, could, I, it could be, but I don't think, I think it's more like years is if, if, if my thesis is right, coming out of the pandemic, we are a different economy. We need to restructure the economy. We've blown the first two years of getting onto it. We should have been getting on to that. Instead, we're sitting around waiting for 2019 to come back. A quick word about the supply chain in two things. One, every inflation has a supply component to it. In the 1970s, it was the Arab oil embargo. And it was Arthur Burns at the Fed who said, oh, we can't be raising rates. This is all supply chain stuff. It's air oil embargo. And as a matter of fact, famously, Stephen Roach, formerly of Morgan Stanley, now of Yale University, was one of his assist young assistants then and was instrumental under the Burns administration at the Fed of creating the core inflation measures of ex-food and energy because they were trying to show it was all about a supply chain problem. But it wasn't. There was more to it going on than just a supply chain problem. The San Francisco Fed's done some really interesting work on this. And they think that at least, you know, that their argument is the 8% inflation, roughly 8% inflation is 2% for their, their target 2% rate, 3% for supply chain and 3% for excess demand. So excess demand is a big problem. The second thing about the supply chain, it's is, I'm gonna quibble and push back a little bit on the New York Fed and the Philly Fed and some of those other measures. They're looking at West Coast, West Coast uh, uh, delays at the ports. If you look now, there's collectively more delays on the East Coast ports than there is on the West Coast ports. The shippers have moved away from the West Coast ports. Now, all of a sudden, Savannah and Charleston and New Jersey, New York, in uh, Houston, they're all getting massive delays. What they've done to ship stuff to the East Coast ports is they're going through Europe. If you look at Hamburg and Rotterdam and those ports, huge delays at those ports as well. So the supply chain problem on balance is a little better than it was in the fall, but only a little. It isn't what people want to say. There used to be 100 ships backed up off the coast of LA and Long Beach, those ports, and they're down to about 20 now. That's because those other 80 ships are now sitting at a port probably off of Charleston or Savannah or New York waiting to get unloaded. 
but it's still better than it was then, but not nearly as much. So this supply chain problem's got a lot more to go, I think, before it gets really solved. But I heard someone last week say that this was Russia, 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 Russia. He said it five times. Now, um, it, it I knew you'd do me. it, Jim. I knew you'd do it. <laughs> did he also say, did, he, did, did you see the quote today? Did he also say, uh, end of quote, repeat line? That, Jimmy, uh, really? that was, oh, my God. I'll send that to you, Jimmy. I have that. <laughs> okay. So, but anyway, back to the series of it. Because, I mean, it, the sad part about the whole thing to me is, is that, yeah, of course, Russia matters a little bit in the in, in the crude market and the grain market. But the notion that they were blaming the whole thing on it, like what level of ludicrous is that, that they were trying to get the sheep to focus on Russia and take their eyes off M2 money supply being up 40%, supply components as you were talking about. Those are the biggest issues, obviously, right? Yes. I mean, you know, yes, those were the biggest issues. Um, and, you know, if all you have to do is look at where was inflation, where was inflation in February, right before the war started? It was in the low sevens, it, you know, and now we're at eight point yeah. six. So we already had Russia. an inflation. Jesus. We already had an inflation problem well before yeah. that, uh, and and so as we move forward from here, that's going to be the political answer that you're going to get is Russia, 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 or the new thing now that they were talking about earlier this week was. Everybody that runs a gas station needs to lower their price. There's no Did market. Did you hear that? Gas oh my God. I want yeah. to jump off a building. Yeah. First of all, great. just so everybody knows, there's no margin at a gas station on, on gas. They right. sell it for like a 2% markup. So what do you want to mark down the price? Four cents. They, they, the reason that they do that is they're hoping that while you're filling up your car, you go in and buy some chips and a Snickers bar. That's wash, where they make maybe. their money. Yeah. You know, or, or a soda. Know. That's where they I've make their a, money. They don't make it on gas. I'm going to pat myself on the back because I had so much fun writing it. I wrote a thread about if we could just outlaw ladders for two to three weeks, because then the guy who was changing the price of gasoline couldn't get to the sign that could stop the that could stop the problem that my economic model showed that that would have some efficacy. But only if we if we outlawed ladders for two to three weeks to flatten the curve. I don't know if you read it. I was pretty proud of it. I don't know if you're yeah, showing no, that's age, that's or the age of your gas station, Jim, and talking about that, because yours isn't electronic anymore. It, is the <laughs> electronic ones? Out? I don't know. I guess I don't really give a shit. I was just having a little fun. I Mr. did this Bianco, people if I could. We're running out of, we're taking too much of Mr. Bianco's time, right? And I'm just trying to not call you both, Jim. I want to ask you one quick question, and then I want to try out a new segment on you. I'm going to kind of ambush you here a little bit, but I think you're uh, the perfect person to ambush with this. Number one, did Jerome Powell make the Michigan consumer uh, inflation expectations more important than, say, the St. Louis Fed's five-year uh, five forward expectations? Did he actually make the Michigan sentiment number too important now? Yes, he did. He did um, because the Fed, the Fed basically, it's Friday, so let me just say they basically stumble from one bad idea to another bad idea to another bad idea. <laughs> Jimmy, you, you got know, your we guy. can swear here. Yeah, you got yeah. your guy you here. Know, asking it, the question. <laughs> it used to be the Phillips curve, and then it was all this other stuff. The latest new bad idea is this thing called inflation expectations or inflation being entrenched. And I've argued I don't think that's a thing. I think that inflation expect, or if it is a thing that there is inflation, it's not measurable and it isn't the tips break evens or the Michigan survey that can measure it. People fear inflation because prices are going up. When prices go down, 
and expectations go down as well too. So he's elevated this whole idea of inflation expectations and the Michigan survey and what 600 random people answer on their survey. Uh, and it's out a week from today, the next one is, you know, whether or not the five-year, five-year is 3.2% or 3.1% as being as important as the payroll report. I just think that that's a mistake, just like a lot of other mistakes that the Fed has made. But they've got, they've got their theory about in, entrenched inflation expectations, and they're not going to get off of it. And a big part of that theory is this Michigan survey. So for better or worse, it matters, and it matters a lot right now. In, in, in a minute, uh, equity expectations um, do you think it sounded like you're saying equities are doomed? Uh, then we're going we're gonna to let you go. And are you off to a bar somewhere tonight? It's Friday afternoon. But first, let's get to equities. Yeah. Um, so, yes, the problem with equities right now is all of the decline in equities has been multiple contraction. What that means is that earnings expectations haven't moved. So but prices have gone down. So the multiple has come down. Most likely, Wall Street's going to have to start lowering their earnings expectations. Uh, we've done a study of this. On average, in a recession, the, the guesses for earnings right before the recession starts about 35% above what they actually come in at. So if Wall Street has to mark down their earnings expectations by 35%, guess what? The market gets more overvalued. Price stays the same, earnings declines, valuations go up. So we're going to have a more and more of a struggle. As long as the Fed also is focused like a laser on reducing inflation and doing that by sapping demand, they want to create a reverse wealth effect. They use a euphemism for it called tightening financial conditions. Doesn't sound so bad. You and I call it a bear market. And so they want a bear market so that you and I and everybody else, we stop buying things or buying less things to help bring down inflation. That's the game that they're playing right now. So I think that the equity market's going to have a problem. Um, now, is it had a problem? Worst first half of the year in 52 years since 1970. But look at how the market trades. The equity market has only had two up weeks in the last 12. Three in the last 13 with this week being an up week as well, too. In all those up weeks, what also usually happens? Crude oil catches a bid and interest rates go up. So if you're going to say, well, equities are ready for a strong rebound, okay, and what happens if crude oil goes back to $125 and, and the 10-year goes back to $340 at the same time? That's going to be really tough for the, uh, for the valuation crowd to really say, oh, yeah, we got to keep buying stocks and we got to stop worrying about inflation, even though crude oil might be back to $125. That's okay, the we gotta game let that we're playing. Right, we gotta let you go soon. Tell people where they can find you on Twitter first and tell us what your plans are for this Friday evening. Um, so on Twitter, uh, at BiancoResearch.com, you can find me under Jim Bianco on LinkedIn. My website is BiancoResearch.com this Friday. Uh, I'm going for a bike ride. I'm a big avid cyclist, big Tour de France fan, and I'm getting together with some friends and doing uh, 30 or 40 miles to, in about an hour. Friday evening bike ride sounds so much more of a healthy habit than what I generally do on a Friday night. <laughs> well, you didn't <laughs> ask what I'm going to do after the bike ride. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, good. Bianco, By the way, you have I to wanna, come I out wanna... to my restaurant. Bobby, can you tell him that he'd like my restaurant? He's never been. Yeah, he, you yeah. would definitely like it. Burgers are great. The drinks are free. Sorry, Jimmy. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We're talking about my restaurant? <laughs> 
I think uh, Jimmy once spotted me 10 cents on a bourbon over at Brant's of Palatine. Brant's of Palatine, you should all go there. Hey, I want to throw one thing on, on Bianco here because I think he's the guy to ambush with this. I'd like to do this every week, actually. And future guests, I'd like to warn them about this, but I don't think I have to do that with Bianco. In 10 to 15 seconds in plain English, I love all the utilization numbers. I love capacity utilization, refinery utilization. I think labor force participation is kind of one of those. In less than 30 seconds, explain in plain English to people what is labor, uh, the labor force participation rate. Not everybody, not every human being has a job. So the labor force participation rate is 62%, 62 62.3, I think. 62.2. Yeah. So 62.2% of people over the age of 18 have a job. The other 38% are either retired or they're, they're a spouse at home or they're a student or they're unemployed. And so as we go forward from here, there's an argument to be made. Labor force participation is more important than the unemployment rate. How many people in the workforce, the potential number of people over 18 have a job? You know, that number 20 years ago was in the mid 70s and right. now it's in the low 60s. Right. Um, so that's a, that's a measure that's getting more popular as we move forward from here to say, it's a maybe a better metric of the true health of the labor market. Perfect. Thank you, Bianco. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's, this is fun, Jim. I really appreciate this very much. So is Bobby. Thank you. Go Cubs, go Sox. You like that nice neutral thing with both teams? No, I don't. I don't. You got to pick a side here. <laughs> I'm a fan of it. I'm hoping these guys recover at some point, but we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then, then I can't wait for, I can't wait for football season. So I can go back to oh, the Bears 17. Weeks live for football. Season. That's my favorite time of year. No doubt. No doubt. Thanks uh, guys. See you, brother. Thanks Jimmy. Okay. So Bobby, you are going to have to help me rationalize why I believe these trades that I have on. Cause one's going to be a bullish NASDAQ trade and talking to Jim Bianco. And I, I know I read every bit of his stuff religiously because I think he's brilliant. Um, but I'm going to talk about a NASDAQ trade first. And I think it's just, here's my, the thinking of why it's going to be a bullish trade. The, the market today, after this number, the unemployment number, and we priced in the Fed going full speed green light, damn the torpedoes, the stocks recovered and rallied. To me, I think that a couple day rally doesn't seem unreasonable. So the trade is this. I haven't put it on yet. I, I probably will on Sunday night because it's a stop in trade. The SEP micro NASDAQ mm -hmm. buying it at 12,270. Last I saw it, it was below that when I left the trading floor. So it's a stop in level, which we explain on this, on this uh, show sometimes. I want to see other people begin to buy it first. It's not intuitive for people to buy it above where the market is now, but I, I buy it at 12,270 and target 12,770, 500 points on the upside, and stop myself out at 11,900 underneath the psychological 12,000 uh, level. That trade, if it got to its level, makes $1,000. If you get stopped out, make, loses 740 What do you like about it? What do you hate about it? So what I like about it is your stop-in will take you above that June 27th high. So I really like where you place that. You've got uh, an incorrect double bottom in NASDAQ. So what I, what I mean by that is it doesn't fit the parameters of a very high probability double bottom. But most people don't know those parameters. So if we can get above that high, the average person 
will ride the NASDAQ up to somewhere around 12,600 or so, which is pretty, you know, pretty good with where your target is. So I think this one will work. I think what could get in the way of it is your bond trade. Oh, I don't mean your actually, trade specifically, but. <laughs> right, I know, I know, which is yeah. funny to me because I was going to get to that. And I realized they're not very Congress, but both of them are based on technicals. And I wanted to help you to help me talk myself through the bond traders too, because what Bobby's alluding to is my bond trade is for higher yields, which by the way, uh, three out of the, uh, two out of the last four shows I've had on yield trades, they've been losers. They got stopped out. Now, again, I've been a little bit of a, a downward uh, spiral here. Trade. I mean, some of the trades I've talked about with you guys have lost money on, others I've made money on. The Canadian dollar trade is still alive that we talked about last week. But uh, I, I get what you're saying. And Bobby's saying if rates start to go higher, that could weigh on stocks. But I'm hoping that in the short term, perhaps they can live with that. So what's your trade? So I like crude oil here uh, to the downside. Uh, we mentioned it last Friday in the podcast. I said I had turned negative on crude oil, which is why I wasn't in love with your Canadian dollar trade, right? Uh, because the two have a correlation. People need to understand that the New Zealand, the Aussie, and the Canada are commodity-based currencies. So they often, not always, but they often correlate to commodity moves, especially Canada and crude oil. Crude oil, I've turned negative on, but not, not big picture negative on. I actually think we have a strange situation where we have Citigroup calling for $65, and then we have JP or Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan, I forget which one, saying you could see 380 Right. Yeah. Okay, so, talk about guys trying to grab headlines. With I mean, come on. I want to honestly punch those guys. That just, By the way, the city absurd. guy came and revised to say it could be 45 after the 380 came out. So it's just those guys, they don't trade. We, we yeah. have to say analysts do not trade. They're not allowed to trade. So they don't. And they often modify their targets after the fact and end up being right by the end of the year. So whatever with those guys. <laughs> but I want to I sell a rally in crude oil here. And this is one of those cases where the CME's micro contract, had it not existed, I could not do this trade because my risk would be $5,000 per contract. And that exceeds what I will do in my personal account. This is not an account, a trade that I'd like to do for PATH. I'm, I want to do this personally. So if we get a rally up to 107.10, I'll sell it there. I actually have a limit order in to sell it there. Uh, my stop is going to be about 112.10. Now, with the micro contract, one contract gives me $500 of risk instead of $5,000, which would have been in the standard side contract. Um, but it's possible I'm going to make more than double my money. The possibility of the make on this is $1,140. None of this ever includes any fees, obviously, because my target price is $95.70. I actually have an overall target of about $93 to the downside. Then I think the trade up resumes. And I think we're well over $100 again by next summer. This is exactly the same camp I'm in. I believe, like Jim Bianco said, that the recession is upon us. And I believe demand destruction um, is happening in crude. And, and you, it, even the demand numbers that we've seen recently have started to trend down this year. People are like, oh, you know, why is that? Well, it's, it's because crude is, I mean, because oil, so, uh, gas is $6 a gallon. Of course, you're going to start thinking differently. I mean, right. if you if you are hanging out with a bunch of people who haven't even once mentioned it, you're very fortunate because you're hanging out with a very rich crowd. But there's a lot of people who are who are very, very concerned about. It. So I believe this is true. And then I believe, um, I, you know, I'm not as down about the whole recession and the Fed as Jim Bianco is, by the way, too. 
I think equities in the fall are going to find their footing. And I do think I wanted to actually bet him a shiny dollar that the Fed is going to have some sort of a pivot in September and and talk about um, a, a neutral rate. Do you think I'm crazy? And again, I don't no. I don't make a habit of going against what Bianco thinks. I think he's brilliant. It's, it's hard to do that, man. Some of these people we just don't give enough, get enough time with. Uh, people oh, yeah. like Jim and, and, you know, Mike Arnold, at least we get him uh, once a month. But people like Jim and, and Cameron and Amelia, which, by the way, two weeks, I think it's two weeks from now, we got a show with both of them, which is going to be ridiculous. There's going to be so much brain power in that show. Uh, and that does not include you and me. We're stupid. But you know, from a perspective of what's can, what can well, We're happen, very confident. We're very confident. We fake it really, really well. But like the national average is down to four, uh, 472 now. Um, interestingly enough, Florida, where I live now, is 440. So I like that we're doing better than the rest of the country in everything. But you know, the national average being 472, people are actually going, oh, you know, thank God we got a break here. We're only down at like 450. You know, we're not up with $5 anymore. And they see that as a right. break. And that's that weird sort of change Jim's talking about. This happens in every aspect of life. When you experience $5.50, $6 gas, $4.70, it's like, you know, yay. Thank God. So I suspect we'll find our footing toward the end of the year as well. Um, But the interesting part about it, man, is, and I was going to ask Jim Bianco this, and I didn't get a chance to, can you have an actual recession with 3.6 unemployment, adding 350,000 jobs a month? Or is labor lagging? Um, If we keep going with labor, with uh, employment numbers like this in the fall, yeah, I think we get, uh, stocks get their footing. Yeah. And I don't know what he would answer, but I think he would answer that it's lagging and we're going to start to see it. Because the answer to that is if we do keep adding jobs like that and pulling people out of the sidelines and that participation rate starts to go up. I I think before we go into your yield, Jolt's job number that we got this week, uh, the job openings fell. Now, somebody said to me, I said, oh, wow. okay, so jobs are being filled. He goes, no, jobs are being pulled back because the economy is slowing down. They're posting fewer jobs. That's how this okay. was explained to me. I don't know that that's the case, but I thought no, that, that matters. I, I'm I used to love that Jolts number. I love it less. I've heard some talk of companies posting ghost jobs. You know, a b- bunch of different uh, listings for yeah. one job just to yeah. see what kind of people they can attract. So I'm not so sure how much I love that number. But if if job uh, listings are going down, I do think that's significant. That's interesting. Right. right. Okay. Let's go. Let's go to my um, yield trade. So here's my question before I even give it. What I really kind of wanted to do was uh, buy the two-year, sell the 10-year. I think both are, the yields are going higher in the short term. I thought that'd be too convoluted of a trade. Do you agree with that or not? Yeah, it's, I think it's too much for what we're trying to do. Okay, good. And, mo- and people are, uh, I think that most of the retail guys we're talking to, they identify with yields uh, as a, a yield percentage instead of a price, you know, because it's- Yeah, we're going to have to actually do a whole show on the yield curve. You did one on Ninja, and if people watching this- didn't watch that ninja episode they need to watch it because you're really good at explaining why that stuff matters appreciate that very much thank you so here so i think i still don't like it go ahead neither does a lot of people (laughs) people have punched it over the years they hated it so much (laughs) but lots of people and i never understood why but anyway um the 10-year july micro yield contract see me uh, buy 3.12, which is a little bit above again. That's another kind of a stopping thing, but it was very, very close to the market with a target of 3.75 on the upside. Um, the stop placed below 2.75. Uh, 
I think today was one of those big days that changed everything. It was the unemployment number and rates went higher. I don't believe that's going to be a one day thing. I think that's going to, they're going to move up to 3.75 from a technical standpoint, 2.75 looks like the good stop up, but I will give a caveat and you guys who watch it and, and mark these trades. I thought that 285 was going to be the level of the stop up too. And it traded just below 280 wiped out the, the stops and nobody lives happily ever after in that. So what do you think of this? So here's, okay, I'm going to sort of revise what I said before. Now that I'm looking at a 10-year yield chart here. The 10-year yield has kind of broken out a little bit, technically. And so I'm now going to say that since your NASDAQ trade is a stop in, it probably won't get triggered if this trade works. But my question to you then, technically, I like the trade. The target is new highs, right? I mean, at least new recent highs, obviously not new all-time highs. Because the, the high recently, the high settle at least was in the 340s, wasn't it? Yeah, that that I thought if it so it broke used out to, you're not in the recession camp then. No, I, I am in the recession camp. I think this is a short term, the short term thing. I actually it's more technical than fundamental, actually. Okay. Um, and I think so. Here's what I'm in. I'm in the recession camp that we don't that nobody acknowledges the recession and the market doesn't acknowledge the recession and the Fed doesn't for another month. You know what I mean? That that can yeah. and has happened before. So I want to ask you a philosophical question. Um, I think I think this trade, I think your target may be a little far, but I think you're going to get movement in your direction. And then why not just trail the stop and see where it goes? So I think I now end up liking this trade more than your Nasdaq trade, but I don't think your Nasdaq trade will trigger if this works. And I think this will work. Cool. Here's here's the philosophical question I wanted to ask you. Do we need to name this? And I'm actually talking to most of the people I interact with on Twitter. I interact with a lot of people on Twitter about recession. Are we in it? in the live streams that we do for Path Trading Partners on the YouTube channel where this video is posted. We constantly have members, uh, and actually I'd like to get you to come on to one of those and just chat a little bit, but members will say, are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? What's going on? And and I started to think about it today and I thought the National Bureau of Economic Research who is charged with basically saying that was a recession. They don't say this is a recession. They say that was. They never, I haven't seen them name one while we're in it. Have you? No, no doubt about it. You're absolutely right. We're out of it. So why do we give a shit? Or why do people care so much? Um, I'm not not sure that there's an answer to that question, but what are your thoughts on that? Like, why do we need to name it? There's only, we don't. The only reason I care about it is because the Fed responds to it. And the Fed, as we know, the Fed has been trailing these moves for a long, long time. The the move to not... That's to fair. not tighten and to not stop buying bonds. You know, it obviously in retrospect seems politically motivated. They want to save their phony baloney jobs, blazing saddles quote. Um, and, and I think that they miss things quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. We don't give a crap what that says. What we do care about is what we think the Fed is going to react to. And a negative GDP number, even if we could, even if, People who are Jim Bianco level of smart, which is this much above the Federal Reserve. I wasn't going to even say you and I. This much, yeah, just much above the Federal Reserve. I mean, if he can piece apart that GDP number and say why it's a good number, not a bad number, and be right, doesn't matter. The Fed still reacts to headline numbers because they're politically motivated as well. So that's the only reason we care about what the uh, NB, whatever those jumbled initials are. Uh, about what they say a recession is. We know when there's a slowdown happening. We just want to know when the Fed reacts. 
Yeah, I'm just curious if we're going to refer back to this as a recession, or is it just going to be that time that really sucked when everything costs too much? So we're at that part of the show. Um, please ask Jim where people can. I'm sorry, I'm reading the teleprompter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they can find me at the bar. I'm going to be <laughs> there about an inch and a half into a glass of whiskey in about 10 minutes. <laughs> if you have if you have Amazon Prime and you haven't watched, uh, I think it's called Terminal List. Uh, yeah, oh my it? God, that is so intense and so good. Uh, Chris Terminal Pratt. List? Terminal List. Chris Pratt from Guardians Chris of the Galaxy. It's like eight episodes long and he just murders everybody. It's amazing. He's great. He's Is he funny in it or is it no, dramatic? No, he's not. It's dramatic. It's like, well, he's, yeah, it's my awesome. wife gets into stuff. Like my wife really gets into shows. Like she cries during uh, Disney animated features when inevitably one of the characters dies. There's a short on Disney where a volcano is all alone and keeps singing that he wants to fall in love. And then he dies before he finds love. And then he erupts and finds her. My wife's bawling her eyes out at this digital volcano who can't find love. But I look at my wife during Terminal List and she's like this the whole time. Like she's just stressed. It's awesome. Dude. Fantastic. It's awesome. So, By the way, we talk about shows, and we give we give a lot of publicity to these shows. If a lot of people watch our podcast. They should start sponsoring us. But yeah, I'm really almost do. through. I'm almost through winning time. If, if you don't so mind good. the fact, it, it's it's soft porn, of course. By the way, that's what yeah, you there is gratuitous nudity in that gratuitous nudity, but it's awesome show. It's and my so buddy, you know, I told you, my buddy was on the team, who he gives me no comment at all. <laughs> about I, I keep texting him is it true about this? and he just he's written, then about a minute about a minute later he'll text me about something unrelated like he never even got the text so he's an <laughs> asshole love it all right i'm leaving i'm going to the bar i'll see you brother see you brother talk to you soon <laughs>